Welcome to Desert City Church's podcast. Thanks for listening in. What you are about to hear is a sermon given live at one of our Sunday gatherings. We are a new church serving neighborhoods on the edge of North Phoenix and Scottsdale, Arizona. Our sermons are ongoing conversations around a sacred text or scripture in which we find the story of Jesus. We hope they inspire you to love God and others more. If we can serve you in any way or answer any questions about our community, please don't hesitate to ask. You can find out more information at DesertCityChurch.com. As you uh, make your way back to your seat, we'll go ahead and get rolling here. We are uh, walking through the book of Luke during this season of Lent leading up to Easter. This morning, uh, we will be looking at a parable told by Jesus as found in Luke chapter 8. It is the parable of the sower. To kind of set up the scene for you, it, Luke tells us that there is this large crowd that gathers from town after town, and Mark and Matthew tell us in their version of the parable that it's near the Sea of Galilee. So there is this large crowd, probably because Jesus and his disciples are traveling around from town to town. They're hearing about this man named Jesus, and this is their opportunity to come see him. They hear he's this teacher. They hear he performs these miracles, and they wanted to see for themselves who this Jesus really is. So if you can imagine, there's this huge crowd that is gathered, and here is Jesus and his 12 Disciples, those who followed him from town to town. And Jesus, seeing the large crowd, addresses them with this parable found in Luke 8, starting with verse 5. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on, and the birds ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seeds fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. Still other seeds fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. Now, if I ended the sermon there, you guys would be like, okay, great. So that was about farming? I don't really... I was trying to to figure out what's the deep truth to what you were just saying. And Jesus ends it there, and he's like, all right, good night, everyone, and like walks away from the large crowd. So the question is, why does Jesus tell this parable? I think that there are two uh, reasons behind Jesus telling not only this parable, but many parables. And the, the first is this. It's to take an earthly understanding in order to explain a heavenly truth. To take something that's understandable in earthly terms in order to explain something that is beyond our current reality. It's to take something plain in order to explain something complex. This is plain language. It doesn't take special vocabulary or a special education. Anyone can come in and hear this and understand it. In fact, for this crowd, if you can imagine at this time in history... Many of those who were in this crowd, if they weren't farmers, they understood what farming was. Because there was nothing in between the farming and their table. 
This is like the hipster haven. This is truly farm to table. Like this is how they lived their life. There was no manufacturer. It was all locally sourced. Like there wasn't any advanced logistics to move groceries from one place to another. It was simply you grow it, you put it at a market, people buy it, bring it home, and they eat it. So for those who are hearing it, they're like, ah, yes, this is true. I get this. Because this is very much their livelihood. This is what they hear on a daily basis. But as we know, Jesus many times is saying one thing, but he's also saying something else. I love the way that James Edwards puts it in his commentary on this passage when explaining parables. He he explains parables in this way. Parables are like stained glass windows in a cathedral, dull and lifeless from the outside, but brilliant and radiant from within. We see this parable that seems kind of dull and plain in its presentation. But once we actually dig in, we find what's inside of this story. Once we find what's inside this parable, we realize that there is something beautiful, something magnificent that's being shown to the world. We just have to go inside to see what it is. Parables in nature are paradoxical. It's a simple truth, yet it's telling a complex truth. It's a simple truth that's also telling a complex truth. So we see that Jesus tells this parable to this large crowd, and then he breaks away, and his disciples come up to him. It's like, listen, um, I, I just want to know, what does that mean? Like, Jesus, I know, I get it. Like, maybe they don't get it, but I get it. There's always something being said when something's not being said. And so Jesus is going to explain it to them. And in order to preface it, he, he tells them these words in Luke chapter 8, verse 10. He said to the disciples, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to others I speak in parables, so that though seeing, they may not see. Though hearing, they may not understand. When we look at this phrase, the kingdom of God, it's something that we hear routinely in our church world. But at the time when Jesus says this, it's very controversial. It's very subversive because they're in the midst of the Roman Empire. If you remember last time I was up here, I mentioned Mark chapter 1, verse 1, how Mark begins the account of the gospel of the life of Jesus Christ. It sounds like plain language to us because we're so used to it. But Mark says these words in opening his gospel. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. They are in the midst of the Roman Empire that literally on their coin says peace through victory. Meaning, if you don't join us, then you're going to be defeated. And once we defeat everyone and it's just us, there will be peace because there's no one else to defeat. And here is this message, this good news. When the Romans had their good news saying, we've defeated another nation. They're claiming this good news and saying, I understand their good news, but we actually have something different. This good news is a little bit different from the Roman good news. And Caesar would claim to be the son of God. And here Mark is saying, I know that the the man who is sitting on top of the throne of the biggest empire known in the world says he's the son of God, but I know one who chooses not to be the master, but chooses to be the servant, and he is the son of God. Everything that the Roman empire is, this is inverted from that. 
there is something very subversive and there is something very dangerous in what's being said. So the second reason I believe Jesus tells this parable, it's not only to make sure to explain an earthly understanding uh, of a heavenly truth, but, but it's also that we would also come to this understanding of this subversive kingdom. And it so happened to be hidden within the message. To tell a subversive message hidden in a plain text. So, that sets up the parable. We're talking about more than farming. We're talking about this kingdom, this new way of living. Something is changing and happening in the midst of the story. So let's look at this parable then. First, let's look at the characters. The three main characters that we find within the story are the sower, the seed, and the soil. And IV says the farmer, but the sower, the seed, and the soil. First, let's look at the seed. The seed in this case in the parable is the word. How do we know? Because Jesus said so. He explains the parable in verse 11. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. I know I'm not, like, wowing anyone with my theological prowess there. Like, that's, that, there's no deep, like, Greek meaning there. It's just, he says, the seed is the word of God. Now, the question becomes, what is he saying when he says the word of God? Our first thought may be, well, it's the Bible, right? Well, we don't have canonized scripture at this point. We have, you know, we have the Torah, we have the Tanakh, we have the law, we have these old scriptures, but they would refer to them as the ancients, or, or they would say the law, they would refer differently than just saying the word. When we hear the word here, it means something that is new and fresh. In John, in his account of the life of Jesus, he opens up telling about Jesus, calling him the word. In fact, in verse 14 of John 1, he says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. See, this the word, the seed. It's about the king, his kingdom, in this new way of living. It's this new truth. It's this revelation that the way that things were isn't how it's going to be moving forward. We haven't arrived yet. That is what the seed is. It's this deep truth revealed by Christ becoming flesh, God among us and showing us this heavenly, divine way. The way that God desires for life to look like. The next is uh, the character, the sower. Uh, God is a sower. Going back to verse 11, it says, the seed is the word of God. God is the one who owns the seed. God is the one who distributes the seed. Now, when I was younger and I first heard this parable, for some reason, maybe because I heard it and then I have ADHD, so I went on to something else, but I assumed that we were the sower. I thought humanity was a sower because I thought, well, you know, you sow what you, or you reap what you sow, right? Like that's also Jesus. So therefore, it must just, you know, collaborate together. And the other part of it is I, I thought the sower was kind of careless, and I thought, oh, yeah, like humans, we're kind of dumb and we just spread seed, whatever. It doesn't, you know, and I thought it was a warning. I thought, okay, well, you know, I need to be careful with where I invest my time and my actions. And I need to make sure that I'm planting my, my intentions into good soil. And, and that's what, what God wants me to do. 
But if God's a sower, then is God careless by spreading seed across a path, across rocky soil? Is he careless when throwing it among thorns and hoping that some land in the good soil? Well, going back to the crowd that Jesus was giving this parable to, they were near the Sea of Galilee, which has this very harsh land. It's very harsh soil. There's not a lot of good soil within this area. So those who farm would understand why this was happening. Because you'll take whatever ground you can and hope that something springs forth from it. You're willing to plow whatever kind of ground you can plow and hope that there's going to be something yielded from that soil. So whether it's good soil or it's among thorns or it's among rocks or it's a path even, their hope is that something would come from it that we could be able to sell or nourish ourselves with. And it began to change the way that I saw this parable because I realized who God is in the midst of the story. God is not careless. God is hopeful. God looks at the most depraved soil and sees potential. He values the opportunity to dig into thorns and try to plow it in order to see some sign of life where it is most least likely to appear. He's willing to get his hands deep into soil that makes no sense to us in terms of farming because he believes that it has value. And not to jump ahead too far, but we are the soil. You are the soil, and God values you. No matter the place in life that you are, no matter where your heart resides, as we'll go into four different realities, God values you. He sees you as worth the seeds. He sees you as worth the tilling and the plowing. He sees you as worthy of being invited into what he's doing. That said, you, me, we are the soil in this parable. Now, Jesus sets up four, essentially, archetypes of soil or people. And the first, as we look at, at these soils, is the path. It's what we would refer to as a hard heart. Verse 12, as Jesus is explaining this parable to his disciples, he says, those along the path are the ones who hear, then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so they may not believe and be saved. Now, I will say that this parable is more nuanced than a three-point sermon would allow me time to give. So I'm not going to define or encapsulate the entirety of each archetype and say that this is exactly what this is. In fact, if you have differing views or you have something to add, I would love to hear after the sermon to what you also hear when Jesus describes the soil. But one thing that, that came to mind is um, this, this is the archetype of someone Something happened in the past that closed the door. Maybe three examples of this is someone claimed to be a believer and hurt them. Someone claimed to be good soil and hurt them, and so they hear this message, and they're like, yeah, no, I, I, I know what that is, and I, I don't want any part of what that was. That, that hurt me. And so they're closed to the possibility of hearing about this truth, about this seed. The second may be that, that God was made too small, 
Or maybe God is regressive, not progressive. Or maybe God is boxed into this certain quadrant and God can't bleed outside of that. So we've moved past God. We've We've seen things that show that the way that we interpret the narrative of Scripture show that we're beyond him. And so why would I go backwards? Why would I consider something in the past? We're moving forward. And the third, maybe that no one has actually introduced them to God. I think the assumption is, is that we all understand Scripture. We all understand the story about Jesus. He's born in a manger, died on a cross, resurrected out of a tomb. I mean, 80% or 75%, whatever it may be, whatever percent of our country claims to be Christian, we, we assume that everyone just knows the other 25% by osmosis understands this message. But it's not the case. Sometimes it's not the natural framework that we're operating from, so we don't give it time or attention. It's just foreign language to us. The second type of soil is the rocky soil. I would call it the shallow heart. In verse 13, Jesus describes it this way. Those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in time of testing, they fall away. Now, the first person I thought of was probably found on your Facebook feed. This is the person who's into something new every week, and they are all in. They spend $1,500 on a new paddleboard and use it once. They are the ones who are always moving on to the next superfood. Kale is out. Quinoa is out. Now it's all about cured meats. Eat cured meats for the rest of your life, 120 years old. This is a person that goes from exercise fad to exercise fad and somewhere in between gains about 10 pounds in between each. <laughs> this is... This is the person in your office that comes back from a conference ready to change everything every other month. Okay, we're going to get rid of desks. We're actually going to have communal tables in the middle. Everyone's going to sit together, and it's going to make us 80% more productive. And then I go to another conference and said, never mind, go all the way back to where we were before. Now we just need standing desks. If we can get standing desks, then everyone will be 120% more productive. And continually on and on, they always consistently change and when they hear this gospel message, it's like, oh, this could change everything. Yeah, yeah, no, I was thinking about it all wrong. If I approach my life in this way, oh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to do everything I need it to. And then they wake up the next day and there's still bills on the table. Relationships are still broken. And they realize it didn't just fix everything. And so they move on to the next solution. This is what I would call the rocky or shallow heart. The next one is thorny, which I would refer to as the distracted heart. Verse 14, Jesus says this about it. The seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. Now, in understanding the words here, I believe we have to not only look at the crowd around Jesus, but then look at our own lives. I think that we can break this into two types of people that we're hearing this word. First, life's worries. They were anxious about how little they had. And then there was riches and pleasures caught in how much they had. Where they were either worried that they didn't have enough or they were searching for even more and caught up in their own accomplishments. I love in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9, 
The great poet says these words of wisdom as a prayer heaved up to God. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but only give me my daily bread. Give me today's bread. If you remember daily bread, Jesus does refer to this as well. But give me today's bread. Give me enough. Give me what I need. Let me be present in this moment knowing that I'm taken care of now. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. That's a whole other sermon. I don't want to take up your, your whole Sunday, so we'll move on. But may that sit and rest in your heart as we wonder which side we're, we're on. And really, we have today's bread. We've been here before. We'll overcome whatever it is again. We don't need everything we think we need. We have today's bread. Now, the last soil that Jesus refers to is the good soil. I would say it's the receptive heart. In verse 15, he says these words, But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart, who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. Two things. Their heart is open. They're receptive. They're willing to hear something new. They're not hardened. They're not closed off. And secondly, they've put themselves in a place where something can be nurtured, over time can grow, and just underneath, no evidence even above, but there's something deep happening within their hearts, within their lives, that's transforming the way that they see the world. And soon enough, something sprouts. Something comes up from the soil, And that's a moment when we see this kingdom of God. This is a moment where we see someone living differently from the way that the world portrays our life should be. This is someone who sees injustice and this fruit that they bear that comes up from the soil is meeting that injustice with justice. This is someone who sees someone else that is broken and walks with them that they might be restored. This is someone who is hopeless, finding hope. There is something, a moment happening in your own lives as you walk through your faith journey and maybe there's been ebbs and flows of your faith and sometimes you feel closer to God and sometimes further away and sometimes you're like, do I believe in God or or is he real? And, And other times you're completely devoted to him. But no matter what your faith journey has looked like, there are moments in our life where we can point out and say, yeah, that was good soil. For me and Libby, there was this moment in our lives where uh, we encountered someone else's good soil. Uh, six months ago, Libby and I had our first child, Eleanor, the cutest baby in the world, bar none. I get to say that because I have a mic, uh, so no contesting that. Um, <laughs> when we had our daughter, our daughter was supposed to be born uh, in October, and three weeks before her due date, uh, Libby's blood pressure was rising, and uh, as it rose, we were getting more and more concerned because we had developed this plan. Even before uh, Libby was pregnant, we came up with this plan that we wanted to have this home birth, and it was going to be just the way that we wanted it, and it was going to be perfect, just like we learned from our wedding, of course, everything goes the way you want it to, but we had this perfect plan. We thought 
everything is going to go perfectly. We're going to have this child in our home. It's going to be in this comfortable place, and we're not going to feel pressure to make other decisions other than the ones that we want to make. And everything was planned out. We had the inflatable pool and everything. And three weeks before that was supposed to happen, we go down to the fire station and have Libby's blood pressure checked. Side note, just a little sermon tidbit for you. You can go to the fire station and get your blood pressure checked for free. <laughs> so, so Libby has her blood pressure checked, and they're like, okay, you have two options. Either we can take you to the hospital or you can take yourself to the hospital. But either way, that's where you need to go. And we're, like, devastated. We're like, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And so we drive a couple minutes down the road to the hospital across the street from our house, and we get checked in there, and they're checking out everything. And this doctor who we've never met, that we have no rapport with, that we honestly just don't know if we can trust or not, comes in and says, hey, um, you have two options. We can either induce you tonight, or you can go home, pack a bag, and come back tomorrow. And here we are sitting, like, thinking, this is not what we planned. And so we went home, and we literally Googled what to take to a hospital when having a birth. Like, we didn't know. Like, we, like, do we take the pool with us? I don't know if that's cool. Um, but we, I, I Googled it, and then I went to the grocery store, and I, I picked up every snack I can imagine that Libby would want, and Cheez-Its for me, and, like, I get everything that I think would make that room feel like what we wanted to, everything that we planned on. And for me, one small thing that, that I thought... You know, it was just a small symbol of home. I picked up just a simple bouquet of flowers. And when I got home, Libby didn't care about anything else but those flowers. The fact that she would have this symbol of life and what we cherish in our home of comfort, that she would have that in her room, gave her the sense of reassurance, of resilience that she could overcome whatever was in front of us. And there's someone that planted these flowers. And there's someone who put those seeds in the soil. And there's someone who collected those and cut them and placed them and arranged them just a certain way. And they have no idea that now these flowers have been pressed and placed upon our wall at home that we can look up and remember a moment of reassurance. I remember a moment where when we felt lost, we found some sort of hope. And in the same exact way, there are times in our lives where we don't even realize that we are being the good soil, opening our hearts and allowing for a seed to be planted, that the kingdom of God may come into someone else's life and bring hope where there was no hope, to bring resilience where there was weakness, to bring about love when we feel completely unlovable. There is value in being the good soil. There is something deeper than just our own ventures that we can be a part of. This is not a self-help parable. This is an invitation. In fact, when I originally read this passage, I also thought that this was a moment of judgment and saying, okay, you're going to hell, you're going to hell, you're going to hell, and you're good. I thought this was a moment of judgment. Now, that was teenage Tom and everything, and that's how I process things because it was a lot more simple back then. But... I thought this was literally a moment in judgment. Okay, this is this type of person, this is this type of person, and this is just how they are. But what I began to realize, what I began to see is that this parable of the sower is not a moment of judgment. 
but rather a mode of living. It's not an indictment. It's an invitation. You and I are invited into a new reality. Constantly, daily, in moments of turmoil, in moments of strength, in every moment of our lives, we are consistently, constantly invited into this mode of living where we can be open and receptive to this truth. And from it can spring forth life that changes the world around us. Now, I want to close with this. If you and I are the soil... If we are this good soil, then the church is the garden. If we are the soil, the church is the garden. And the garden has the potential to grow into a great forest. We do not come as soil on Sundays and separate our soil from everyone else and go home and just keep our soil to ourselves for the week and then come back and say, oh, hey, how's it going? Small talk and... Take your soil back. No, we are the church. We are intermingled. We are united. We are a garden where the soil is mixed together with one mission, one focus, that the seeds would plant and they would grow from this church and it would begin to change Desert Ridge and it would begin to change our city. And it's not only us, it's our sister churches. Not only is it our sister churches, but it's a church at large. And we have the potential, not as just a pot of soil, but as a garden to provide this life beyond life, this nourishment, this place of hope for the hopeless, to bring restoration to places that are broken. We have the potential to bring justice to the midst of injustice, to bring uh, hope to the oppressed. We have the possibility to not only be the good soil in our own lives, but together, not only be generous in our own actions, but be generous together. We have the possibility not only to fight injustice in our own lives, but to fight injustice together. We can seek the welfare the well-being of our city together. You and I, we are the soil and the church is the garden and the garden has the potential to become a great forest, especially in the midst of a desert. We have the potential to turn over soil, to work the ground no matter the potential that anyone else sees and begin to plant the seeds of the gospel and see the kingdom of God come and change things. As Tim comes up, um, I would ask us to prepare our hearts for this time of communion, something that we do every week. And as we approach the table, um, anyone who confesses that Christ is Lord and uh, believes that, that uh, the Father rose his son from the grave, then, then what we believe here is that we come to this table we pick up something so simple as a crushed grape, something grown from the ground. And we take that and we remember the blood that was spilt for us. And then we take the bread, something made from the ground. God provides what we need. It culminates with God taking flesh 
living among us, showing us a new way, introducing us to his kingdom and inviting us in. The good soil is receptive. This morning, I pray that you're receptive to what Christ is doing. As you take communion, you open your hearts and be receptive to what God has done. And then, may you allow it to sit, to find seed into root, into your heart. This morning, I pray that as you take your time this morning, you, you will also go before God and allow for it to change who you are. That you may see the good fruit come from the soil. You're able to take communion at, at your own pace, own time, uh, but this morning, go before the throne, be receptive, and allow for it to take root.